0: Well, it is great to be with you on this first Sunday after uh, this amazing Easter celebration that we had here in Highland Park, from uh, seeing so many people who stood up as a way of, of, of saying Jesus is now the center of my story, to the baptisms on the front lawn at sunrise. Uh, then to follow up on one other thing, we, we said last week that every dollar of our Easter offering was going to go beyond our walls to help with, with key mission partners in Ukraine, uh, some amazing ministries like Convoy of Hope, Samaritan's Purse. We even have one member of our church who's gotten connected with the folks at UPS. And uh, some of the higher-ups there have committed uh, committed a 747 to bring needed supplies into Ukraine and the surrounding areas, so that's kind of cool. We're working with uh, these partners and agencies who are on the ground in Ukraine and and sort of surrounding areas, bringing relief to some of the most vulnerable in that war-torn country. Now in recent history, we've been able to, and you've been such a generous congregation on Easter Sundays, we've raised upwards of $50,000 for amazing uh, initiatives, partnerships, uh, mission work around the world. So we had this bold idea that together we might be able to stretch that and double that uh, in this uh, 2022, uh, 2022 Easter Sunday. Well, you didn't double it. You gave $236,207. And that's on top of the $120,000 that's already gone out to Ukraine relief efforts. So just way to go, church. Thank you for bringing resurrection hope to those who need to know that fear, suffering, injustice do not get the last word in our world. So let me pray. Let's pray, and then we're going to jump in. Jesus, we thank you for, for grafting us together with the global church, and we thank you for those who've, who've uh, been willing to... to to let go of what you have given and entrusted to them so that it would help those who are, who are in, tangible need, in tangible need right now. We thank you that you're still, at, you're still at work bringing hope to dead places. Would you help us even now as we open your word to be more alive to who you are and to what you're doing in the world? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're beginning, as Sterling said today, a series called, Did God Really Say That? A good friend of mine has a a good way of talking about this. He says we all have favorite books of the Bible, uh, and most of us have one book in particular that's our favorite. It's called the Book of First Opinions, right? All of our Bibles have 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, but somewhere along the way we all end up adding a 67th book. It's kind of a scrapbook of various opinions that we are just sure are in the Bible somewhere even if we can't figure it out where they are, or at least that God agrees with these opinions that we have. Now, the reason we're doing this is not to pick on or to look down on people who, uh, maybe without meaning any harm by it, have misquoted from the Bible from time to time. I know that I have done that before. But this actually gets to a fundamental truth that was best described by A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of God. And, And I want you to see this. Here's what he writes. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we think about God, our picture of God, is the single most important thing about us. So if our ideas of God and his character and what he's actually like, if our thoughts of God are wrong or even misguided, then it can limit our ability to trust in him and to know him fully for who he really is. If what we think about God is the most important thing about us, then, then, then we better do our very best to make sure that what we're thinking about when we think about God is based on what he actually said. So, for example, a lot of people in our world think that the Bible says, God will never give you more than you can handle. And so they might believe, eventually, that being a Christian means your life will always be manageable. But the Bible never says that. And life will often give people things that cannot handle at all. And so when these things come your way, you might be tempted to think that somehow God doesn't actually care for you or he doesn't meet you in that. Or here's another one. Uh, Some people believe that the Bible says that money is the root of all evil, and so they think that if they think the Bible is anti-money, or they think that if you have financial gifts or the ability to generate wealth, that you're not really a deeply spiritually committed person. But that's not what the Bible says about money. So for the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of these sayings that aren't actually in the Bible, and the goal here is is to get to know the real God of the Scriptures in in a way that's going to help us to trust Him and to follow him more hearted, wholeheartedly. Now, maybe the most famous of all of these sayings um, goes a little like this, and I thought we would do this to have a little participation here that, that I would lead off on the first part, and if you could finish the saying with me. So this is going to be a kind of non-biblical call and response, all right? a non-biblical litany. So it goes like this. Here's the first part. God helps those who help themselves. All right, so all of us are on the same page here. God helps those who help themselves. Anybody know where this saying actually comes from? I didn't either, okay? It goes back to Aesop's fables. And in this particular fable, there's a guy who's driving a wagon, and along the way, uh, it gets stuck in the mud. And so he gets out of the wagon, and he kneels down, and he prays to the gods to help him get unstuck. Well, then Hercules appears to him, and Hercules tells him to get up, get off his knees, and to put his shoulder to the wheel. And Aesop says the moral of the story is that the gods help those who help themselves. So yes, it's an ancient ancient teaching, but it's not in the Bible. Again, the point is not to make anybody feel guilty having lived your whole life thinking that this was somewhere like in Romans 17 or you know, your dad always grew up, you were just say, well, as it says in the good book, God helps those who help themselves. But if you're anything like me, there's actually a certain appeal to this saying because it gives me skin in the game. Right? We're drawn to this because it kind of implies that, yes God, yes, God wants to help and he's working in our lives, but what he really likes is to just give a boost to people who've already pulled themselves up mostly by their own bootstraps. Right? He'll help, but he really wants you to help yourself. And then he's just going to kind of support you along the way. But when we look at the central story, the foundational anchoring story of the Old Testament, the Exodus, what we see at the heart of that story is a God who rescues, who helps those who cannot help themselves. Cannot help themselves. So here's the context. The family of a guy named Jacob, also known as Israel, had journeyed to to the area of Egypt to escape famine. And it's an incredible story how Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, had been sold into slavery, and and he ends up becoming prime minister of Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 1, by the time we get to the book of Exodus, we're told that this family was multiplying and flourishing and, and their family was growing like crazy. And one day, the newly crowned king of Egypt, the pharaoh, looked around and he realized, here's this large... Growing ethnic group within our borders that had emigrated into his nation, and they had their own distinct cultural identity, these so called Israelites or Hebrews, and that made the king nervous. So, Exodus 1, verse 8, here's what we read. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, to the Egyptians, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. So the book of Exodus begins with xenophobia. And what does Pharaoh do? Verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them, the Israelites, with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pitham and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And then, if we skip down to verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God He gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And so begins the foundational story for the Jewish people and really for Christians to this day. Which I find striking because it is so different than other foundational stories, right? Most cultures like Greece, Rome, even America, we have these heroic figures who who conquered. They were victorious. Achilles, Romulus, even George Washington. But this, it's a story about slaves. It's about weakness and vulnerability and needing to be rescued. It's not about mighty warriors, which, by the way, is one of the reasons I think it's true. I had lunch this week with a guy who just graduated from college. He grew up in California, uh, didn't go to church growing up. But recently, he's found himself really drawn to Christianity, and he's reading all these books. He actually started reading uh, in the Old Testament at the very beginning of the Old Testament. And as we're having this conversation, one of the things he said to me was the story of Exodus was so compelling to him for this very reason. He said, who would make up a story like that? Like slaves who could not rescue themselves being rescued by God. If you were making up a foundational story, this is not the one you tell. Weakness, vulnerability, smallness, right? that's not usually what inspires people. The other day my son was having a, a play date with one of his buddies at school and uh, I went to pick him up at this friend's house and I got into a conversation with the, the, the friend's dad and you know, it was one of those conversations you've probably had before, like, so where did you grow up? Houston. No way, so did I. Where in Houston? West University, no way, so did I. And so we're talking back and forth and and uh, there were two middle schools in this part of the city of Houston and and one of the ways you basically divided up people in that neighborhood was, which middle school did you go to? And it turns out that dad went to the, the rival middle school that I went to. And by the way, middle schoolers, like we're celebrating middle schoolers today at Highland Park Prez with confirmation. But the thing about this rivalry between these two schools is that it's like the least intimidating mascot rivalry in the world. I've shared before how I went to uh, Pershing Middle School and my uh, my mascot was the, the, the Pershing Mighty Pandas. I'm not sure if we have this, do we have this image? Yep, so, right, which doesn't that just strike fear into an opponent? Like, go, cuddly, cute, mighty pandas. Well, about the only thing less intimidating than a panda is a purple pup, and that was the other school, the Lanier Purple Pups. <laughs> And so you go to these football games, and it's like, go pandas, get them pups, and it just didn't really fire us up in middle school in this part of Houston, right? And it's the same with this foundational story. It is not one of strength. It's like it announces from the beginning that God's people are those who cannot help themselves, That's what gives us our identity as a people. We need rescue. God helps those who cannot help themselves. Now... This doesn't mean that we're passive or that we have no role to play in this journey of faith, not at all. Robert Alter, my favorite commentator on this part of uh, the Old Testament, in fact, he's a, he's a Jewish scholar, but he's written this amazing translation and commentary on Exodus and, and really the, the Torah. But he says that God is always working in Exodus in and through the least expected people, the weak. The overlooked, the marginalized, and more to the point, God's rescue comes through women. There are two men in the story, he reminds us, right? One that's evil, that's Pharaoh, and the other that's inept, that's Moses. But who are the heroes? It's the midwives. The most powerless people in that culture. Slaves who were deprived of their ability to have their own children. And yet here are these midwives who outsmart the king. Right? They're told to kill all the male babies, and they won't do it. And, and if you listen to their excuse, they even sneak in this little jab at the Egyptians. They say, I mean, we can't even get there in time to kill the babies. The Hebrew women are strong, unlike those wimpy, needy Egyptian mothers. Right? And what we discover as all of this unfolds is that even in the worst of circumstances, even when we don't see him, God is bringing rescue even when we don't see it. Just an example of this. In the first two chapters of Exodus God is he's barely mentioned. If you read through in its entirety Exodus 1 and 2 like he's he's barely mentioned. Instead what you have in the opening chapters of Exodus is just the unleashing of suffering. Pharaoh gets nervous about this rapidly growing population of foreigners in his country and so he has them all enslaved. And as soon as he does that rather than 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 crush them it has the opposite effect and we're told the more that he oppressed them the more that they multiplied. The heavier the burden, the stronger they got, which can happen sometimes when you suffer together in community. It brings you closer. It strengthens your sense of identity. What Pharaoh meant for evil, God used for good to help those who could not rescue themselves. Then in the most horrific act of all, when Pharaoh gives this order of the genocide of all male babies, that very act of evil is what sets in motion the rise of Moses. Raised by his own mother for the first few years of his life, long enough to form this Hebrew identity, to shape this Hebrew identity, before he gets shipped off into Pharaoh's court to get trained as a leader, to get the best education in the world, to be trained as a general, a mobilizer of people. If you were to dream up like the the perfect scenario to raise up a revolutionary leader, this was it, A, a revolutionary leader, this was it. And it all traces back to Pharaoh's evil plan, what he meant for evil God was using for good. Then even when Moses, it looks like he royally blows it. In a moment of rage, he, he, he kills a slave master and has to run for his life. And it seems like this perfect hero in waiting just blew his chance to be the liberator that his people needed. But even then, Moses has to flee into the wilderness where his character is formed, where he develops humility along the way. But he also learns something else. He learns how to navigate and survive in the desert, a skill that one day he will need as he leads his people into the promised land. All through this story, you could ask at every moment, God, where are you? What are you doing? Are you even listening? Do you even care? How could you let this happen? But the whole time, God is at work, even when we can't see him. He's bringing rescue to those who cannot help themselves. And then if you skip down to the end of Exodus 2, here's what we're told. It says, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. The writer John Orpurg says that from a human perspective, the whole story of the people of God begins with this single word, help. They cried out for help and God heard them. And God didn't say, hey, help yourselves, or get some skin in the game first, or put your shoulder to the wheel. I'll help those who help themselves. Who does God help? God helps those who ask for help. God helps those who are weak and powerless and in need, who cry out because they know they can't get themselves out of this. They're scared. They're overwhelmed. He helps those who know they need help. So just fast forward into the New Testament, and this story continues in the book of Romans, where the Apostle Paul writes this. It's not a different story than the Old Testament. God continues to work in the same way. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Powerless, weak, bringing nothing to the table. God doesn't help those who help help themselves. He helps the powerless. And this is what makes the God who came to us in Jesus utterly unique. In every other religion, it's like we do something to earn our salvation, whether through good deeds or seeking enlightenment or through making a pilgrimage. It's about us doing something to earn our way toward God's approval. And see, what all these religions understand, like Christianity, is that there is this unbridgeable gap between a fallen people and a holy God. God being perfect and we who are not. And that somehow this gap has to be bridged. But see, the problem with trying to bridge that gap with our own efforts is like, how much is going to be enough? Because if God is perfectly holy, well then how many good deeds is it going to take for me to bridge that gap to finally make my way to God? I mean, it doesn't matter how good I am compared to some some of the other people in my lives. It matters how good I am compared to God. And the problem is, no matter how good we are, we will never be as good as God. And if we try to reconcile ourselves to God through our own efforts, we're always going to fall short, like not even close. It's like climbing flagpole hill thinking you just summited Everest, like you're not even close. You can't do it. But the God who comes to us in Jesus bridges that gap for us. Whatever price needed to be paid for our sins... For justice to be upheld, for the scales to now be even, Jesus did it for us on the cross. My college pastor would say that all other religions can be spelled D-O, do. We have to do something to earn God's approval. But Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, done. It's been done for us. What we could not do on our own, Jesus did for us on the cross. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. All we do is receive. And this, by the way, is what the baptism of a child so perfectly points to. We cannot earn our way to God any more than a baby can declare of their own will to trust in Jesus. Like That's the whole point. God rescues us. All we do is receive. All we do is get washed clean by the waters of his forgiveness now this always leads to a question and it's a good question if all of that is true then does this mean that we don't have to do anything when it comes to our faith like can we just kind of sit back and relax and chill and receive all that god longs to to give to us and 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 through jesus yes and no Yes, we are forgiven. We are rescued from our sins. We are justified. That's the fancy theological term that we Presbyterians love. We cannot do anything to earn that. But just because we've been justified does not mean that we've been sanctified. And that's an even fancier theological word for this lifelong journey of becoming like Jesus. That's part of the journey that our confirmation students have been uh, working through this past year. And yes, we are greatly involved in that. We participate, we cooperate with God in the process of becoming more like Jesus through the work of His Holy Spirit as we learn from God in reading the Scriptures, as we communicate to God and listen to Him and get to know His voice in prayer, and then as we obey His Word and put into practice what we're learning through obedience and in our lives. That's sanctification. And here's the kicker. Justification. God saves those who cannot save themselves. Sanctification. We participate with God in becoming more like Jesus. And here's the deal. You cannot look to one to do for you what only the other can do. You cannot look to your justification to sanctify you. It won't. Right? You're not a passive robot in this. God has given you too much dignity and agency and freedom. He loves you too much to do that. But neither can you look to your sanctification to justify you. It can't. Only Jesus. Only the cross. So, receive what God has done for you in Jesus to rescue you and to forgive you on the cross. And then join with the Holy Spirit in becoming more like Jesus. Not earning anything, but becoming the person God created you to be. So maybe this saying that we've been learning our whole lives that we still can't find in the Bible, maybe it ought to be like, God helps those who cannot help themselves so that you can help in the ongoing transformation that comes from the God who helped you in the first place. <laughs> All right, let me close with this, and then we'll pray. Uh, my kids are going to New York City next weekend for the first time. My uh, in-laws are taking them to see I think, the Harry Potter show, and they're, just, they're so excited about this, but... One of the places they're gonna visit is Rockefeller Center. And if you've ever been to Rockefeller Center on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, there's this huge statue of Atlas, right? And he's, he's carrying this giant world on his back. It's a beautiful, beautiful sculpture, statue. Is it a statue or a sculpture? Okay, I don't know. Well, right across the street on Fifth Avenue, is uh, right across from that statue is a beautiful cathedral, St. Patrick's Cathedral. And if you've been inside this cathedral, and I don't have a picture of this, but there's a statue, another statue, and this one's of Jesus. And in this statue, he's balancing the world on one little finger. Okay, that's a great image of two different ways to live. One way, we can live as if it's all up to us and the whole world and all its burdens are on my shoulders. God helps those who basically have already done everything they can to help themselves. Or we can cry out, God, I need your help. This is too much for me. And we can give our struggles and our weakness and our burdens and our longings and yes, even our victories and strengths and achievements to Jesus, knowing it's all up to him. So whether for you right now, it's pretty much up and to the right, things are going really well, or maybe you're coming in and you're kind of wondering, like, how in the world am I even going to get through today, or this struggle, or this challenge, or this pain that I'm in? What would it look like to cast our cares and even our victories on him? And so as I pray for us, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads now, close your eyes, And for every one of us, we're just going to ask as simply as we can. Let's pray this together. God, would you help? Would you be our help? Would you show up? Would you rescue? Because, God, you help those who cannot help themselves, and that's me. Even when I believe the lie that I don't need your help, in these days following Easter, help us to see Jesus what you did on the cross to save us and give us a longing to become more like you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.